So I'll start in verse 47, and we'll read through 2349. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with them. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led, led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. 
And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are the, under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home 
beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Good morning, Doxa. With that being said, let's, uh, let's pray and just ask God to, to meet us here in this. God, I, uh, I love you. We collectively, as the, the Doxa family, just say that, that we love you. And we love the Bible that you've given us to, to hear your words. And so, Holy Spirit, would you just light up the words of Scripture that you inspired to be written? And it's our prayer that for those who do not yet know Jesus, that uh, with great clarity, you would show us the purpose of his death. And for those that are Christians and are trying their best to, to follow Jesus, that maybe have lost the, the magnitude of the crucifixion, would you reignite a flame in us and just stir our, our passions, our affections for you, that we would leave here different having encountered your great love and grace that we see ultimately through the terrible reality of the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, here is, uh, here's the reality of, of what we just read and, and what we just heard. All right, Everything in Luke's gospel that we have been studying and, and learning about has, has been leading up to this. All right? It's been pointing to, to this very moment. All right, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And if you've been with us, you, you know that since the, the start of this church, as Ronnie talked about, we've, we've been journeying through Luke's gospel for about eight months now, looking at, at Jesus, all right, this man who, who claims to be God and to, who claims that he's going to take away the sins of the world, and, and he is, in fact, has the claim that, that he is good news for, for all types of people. This is Jesus. And if we were to, to zoom out and, and look at the entirety of, of Luke's gospel, of where we've been and, and where we're going, and really even zoom out on the Bible and look at the entire meta narrative, the storyline of the Bible, we would see how, how right now it's, it's culminating to the most important death of the most important person who has ever lived in the history of the world. That, guys, all of human history, from, from the moment that sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, if you go back to the book of beginnings, Genesis, you will see that when sin entered the world, all of humanity, all of creation has been, has been longing, has been groaning, has been just anticipating a Savior, Someone to come and to fix what is broken. And, and we don't have to stand up here and tell us how, how broken everything is. We feel that. This is our life, right? We feel the brokenness in our world with, with death and loss and hurt and suffering. We all feel this. But Jesus, he came into human history. He lived the life that, that we have been studying, that we've been learning about. And he died a death that we're ultimately going to consider today. And guys, here's what you need to know. All right, in, in order for us to really grasp what's going on with this, this thing that Nick just read us, all right, we, we need to understand four words and answer three questions. All right, and four words, if you look back to Luke chapter 23, verse 33, I want you to underline this. There they crucified him. Four words. That changes everything. And we're going to do something a little bit different, okay? That, you know, if you've been around here, we usually just take small chunks of the Bible and just kind of go verse by verse, chunk by chunk. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of consider all of these, these verses that we just read, and we're going to zoom in and look at these four 
specific words, because in understanding these four words, we'll understand the big picture of what we just heard. In looking at these four words, I think it's important to note, guys, that the Bible gives us very few details about the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's likely because to the original audience, right, they had, they had physically seen crucifixions. I mean, they had, they had watched it. They, they knew what it entailed. They had watched it all go down. For us, on the other hand, it, it's important for us to examine this in great detail because we've never seen a crucifixion. We don't know what that's like. And for us to, to fully appreciate the suffering of Jesus and to really worship Jesus, it's important for us to examine what exactly happened in these four little words. There they crucified him. So as we look at these four words, we're going to ask three questions. And this is how I'm going to approach teaching this to you today, okay? Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, what happened to him? And three, what does this all mean for us? Now, I want you to know that really, and, and this isn't me just being overly dramatic, but what I believe about these questions and what I believe about the Bible is that these three questions hang all of our eternal destinies. That depending on how we answer these questions, right, really determines the outcome of our life and the destiny of every single one of us. So I want you to know that, guys, there's, there's nothing more significant, there's nothing more important, there's nothing as, as weighty and heavy to be learned as these three questions, okay? So with that being said, this first question about the crucifixion and death of Jesus is in fact asking the question, who is Jesus? All right, and, and likely if you've been around the church, if you've been in youth group and Awana and all that stuff, you've, you've, this is like, okay, we're, we're, are we down in docks of kids right now? Okay, I get this, right? But like literally, who is Jesus? We have to ask that question. It's so significant to understanding this account that we, we just read. And there truly are, if we boil it down, two answers to that question. We're going to look at both of these, the first of which comes from ancient history and I think is most vividly uh, portrayed in a second century Roman graffito that was found on Palatine Hill in Rome. All right, there's a picture coming up here that you'll see. Lisa and I, several years ago, were, were standing in Rome on Palatine Hill, and it was this moment where it was just like, I was just gripped and, and like stopped to realize that I'm standing in a place where, where so much world history went down. But this picture that you're looking at, all right, is, is really potentially one of the earliest and oldest surviving depictions of the crucifixion of Jesus that we have today. And here's what you're seeing, all right? In this picture, Jesus is on a cross, all right? But rather than his head, the painting shows in its place the head of a donkey, okay? And, and beneath the crucified Jesus is drawn a young man with his hands raised, worshiping this crucified Jesus as God. Now, as you, as you look at this picture, the ca there's a caption below it, right? You see, you see writings, you're like, I don't understand, it's because it's Greek, okay? So we don't know that, but what, here's what it says. It says this, Aleximenos, which is this guy, that's his name, Aleximenos worships his God. You look at this picture, all right, and you might be thinking, okay, wow, that's like really dishonoring. That's like blasphemous. And, and maybe you're like, oh my gosh, this doesn't even seem right that we're, we're talking about this. And you're absolutely right. Because the message here is, is loud and clear. And it's the first option to, to answering the question, who is Jesus? All right, that this, this second century Roman graffito is saying that Jesus is a dead jack fill in the blank. 
that he's a dead donkey and that Christians who worship him are fools. This is option number one. This is what this, this piece of, of ancient graffiti is, is so vividly portraying. But because that any attempt to say that Jesus was just a nice guy and a good teacher and, and all of this is, is really, it, it's just, it's ridiculous. Because this isn't just a nice guy. That if he's not God, he is a person that declared himself to be God. And so if he's not that, he, he's not a decent man. He's not a moral man. He's not a good teacher. He's a lunatic and he's a narcissist and we should list, not listen to anything that he has to say. And we are in fact fools for worshiping him. You are a fool for being here if Jesus is not God. Option number one, he's not. Now, the second option is also rooted in history, but it's found in the Bible. And this is the option that we as Christians, we, we know to be true. And what we see throughout the Bible is that Jesus is in fact the son of God, that he is God incarnate. He's God in flesh. And Jesus, he lived physically on earth. And as he did this, this was the message that he not only proclaimed, but he demonstrated that when it came to, to his divinity and him being God incarnate, Jesus would say it and he would show it. And, and I know that, that maybe some of you, you you're kind of in approaching this and, and you're here kind of reluctantly and, and some of you, you're, you're kind of just trying to feel it out and, and you're skeptical by nature and that's totally fine. I love teaching the Bible to you. Some of you, maybe you're, you have more of like an antagonistic view and you're saying like, Jesus actually never said that he was God. You've, you've heard that before. And if, and if you've heard that and, and that's a sticking point for you, let me just ask you this. Why was he killed? I mean, why was Jesus killed? Because he certainly wasn't killed for being a, a bad person. He wasn't killed for, for doing some horrendous, sinful things. I mean, if you look back, look back to Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man, you brought me Jesus, as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. It will, I will therefore punish and release him. Guys, the Jews, they had Jesus arrested. They put him before the Roman governor, Pilate, and Herod. And after interrogating him and looking at his life record, they said, I, there's nothing I can find against this guy. Jesus did nothing wrong. And this is the thing that we see throughout the scriptures and throughout history. There's, there's not anybody who throws stones at Jesus for, for doing something wrong. He lived a perfect life. And so if he wasn't killed for doing something wrong, like the rest of people throughout history that were killed for doing something wrong, then why? Look back, Luke 22, verse 66. Jesus is being questioned, and here's what we see. 2266, when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, you are the Son of God, then. And he said to them, you say that I am. Verse 71, they said, what further testimony do we need? I want you to underline that. What further testimony do we need? 
We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Guys, the Jews understood what Jesus was doing. He was declaring himself to be God. This is in fact why he was killed. Because he declared himself to be God. And this is why the Jews yell out in verse 22 of chapter 23, crucify him. Because for them, this was like the highest form of blasphemy. That they're like, this guy thinks he's God. There's no way. We got to kill him. And this is why he was killed. If you look back to John chapter eight, when Jesus said before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. He was referencing the fact that he is the great I am. He's referencing the fact that he is Yahweh revealed to the Jewish people in Exodus. They understood Jesus emphatically, clearly saying, I am God. So who is Jesus? That's it. We believe that he is God. That in Jesus, God enters into the human realm. He enters into human history. And Luke has been showing us as we've been journeying through his gospel. He walks on water. He calms storms. He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He raises people from the dead. And next week, we're going to see the fact that he defeats death. And he rises from the grave. Jesus is, in fact, our great Lord God and King. And guys, the only option that we have is to either accept him or reject him. And if we accept him, guys, that is, that is saying, okay, Jesus is in fact God. I will listen to everything he says. And there is no saying, well, I don't really like this part of the Bible. We live under authority. That the Bible is, is literally, if, this is, if Jesus is in fact God, then we live right here under the authority of the Bible. It doesn't matter how we think of it. It's now aligning ourselves with the truth of who God tells us he is. So we either accept him or we just completely reject him. So you have to answer that question for yourself, which is the great question we see in Luke's gospel is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Now, question number two, what happened to Jesus? All right. And this, again, takes us back to to verse 33 of chapter 23, the four words that we're considering. There they crucified him. All right, so we know what happened to Jesus. He was was crucified. Now, here's what I I really believe to be true. All right, that that really, I think the majority of of America, the majority of of Madison, we exist in two camps. There's some of us that are are maybe Christians or non-Christians, that, that really we, we have been surrounded by crosses and crucifixes and images of, of the cross and the crucifixion in such a way that we have been completely desensitized to what the cross actually means and the appalling horror that it actually represents. Some of us, we're, we're really just desensitized and numb to the reality. Now, others of us, maybe you didn't grow up in the church and, and, and you haven't like understood the cross and you're kind of sitting there, Christian or non-Christian, and you're saying, okay, I understand that Jesus was crucified, but if you ask me what that means, I guess that just means that, that they nailed him to a tree. I'm not exactly sure. But I share all that, guys, is that, guys, we, we, we see this idea of the cross and we're kind of just numb. We can walk by a picture of it and I don't feel anything. Right? And you do too. And if we were to see this in a, in a different way, you know, like, like if you were to see somebody like have a tattoo or a, a, a necklace or a painting in their house of like a crucified dog, I mean, holy cow, right? I mean, you would stop and, and what? You'd burn down their house, right? Punch them in the face. We would be like, some of you are, right? 
I mean, it would be that appalling, but we're so used to seeing this crucified Jesus that we don't do anything. It doesn't elicit anything and we don't understand it. We've been cauterized because we haven't literally seen this, but the people in the ancient world, they had. They knew exactly what it meant to say that there they crucified him. It brought pictures of what they've experienced and seen. And did you know that in the ancient world, pagans, I'm not talking about Christians or Jews, but, but cultured pagans in the days of Jesus, they weren't even like allowed to let the word cross come out of their mouth. For them, it was like an obscenity. It was like the equivalent of our four-letter words. The Greek philosopher Cicero, he said that decent Roman citizens shouldn't even speak of the cross because it was unfit for them to even ponder that type of murderous death. That guys, the cross was horrendous. They saw crucifixions. They knew what they were like. We don't. And so it's important for us to understand what actually happened on the cross. In 1986, okay, in the, the March 21st issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, the most ex exhaustive uh, medical review of the crucifixion that's ever been printed was published, all right? And in this article, they, they recreated the horrible scene that accompanied the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's, com it's complete with anatomical illustrations and just detailed descriptions of what happened. And the authors and the doctors and the researchers, they detailed what actually happened with these four little words. There they crucified him. And so what do I want to do when we talk about what happened to Jesus is I want to look at this. I want to look at history and say, okay, what actually happened? I want to give you some understanding so that we can actually know what happened to Jesus and we can appreciate the suffering that he endured. And as we do this, I want you to know, guys, that I'm not trying to be overly dramatic to get you to be like overly sympathetic and be like, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. But I, I'm telling you this because I think that one of the great errors of Christianity is to move too quickly past the cross and assume that everyone knows what we're speaking of. Because so many people, they'll, they'll simply say with a smile on their face, for example, that Jesus, he died on the cross for all of your sins. And that is completely true, but without a proper understanding and explanation of the crucifixion of Jesus, there's not going to be a full appreciation of what is actually happening, especially in light of the fact that God became a man and he endured this for us. So what happened? All right. When we look at history, along with the Bible, we see that before Jesus was actually even crucified, he was scourged. All right. In, in Luke 22, in Luke 23, it speaks of Jesus being beaten. If you look at John 19, it says that he was flogged. In Matthew and Mark, it uses the words of, of scourged. All right, and now scourging, guys, was, was something that we don't really think about, but, but it was altogether so painful that many men who were scourged didn't even make it to their crucifixion because they died right there. And scourging or flogging would occur when a man was, was stripped, oftentimes naked. They were chained with their hands oftentimes above their head, and they were chained to a, a pole of some sort. And as they were kind of laid out like this, the executioner would begin to whip them. And we think of a whip, and we're like, okay, I've seen Indiana Jones. I, I know the idea of a whip. This is not what happened to Jesus. They, the executioner would use something called a flagellum, oftentimes also called a cat of nine tails. All right, so you can picture a, a wooden handle, all right, and a, and a bunch of leather straps coming out of the, the wooden handle, 
right? Kind of like a whip, but there are a bunch of them. Now, at the end of these wooden straps would be heavy metal balls and then hooks made of, made of bone. And what they would do is as the man was tied up like this, they would begin to whip the prisoner. And as they would do this, the metal balls would kind of serve to like tenderize the flesh while the hooks would kind of just sink in. And so they would whip the prisoner and then the executioner would kind of give it a little tug. And that would allow the hooks to sink into the skin. And at that point, they would then pull. And as they would pull, it would rip off chunks of flesh. It would rip off muscles and tendons. There's even recorded history of, of literally ripping off bone and ribs. History records this. The, the church historian Eusebius of, of Caesarea he describes one of the, the crucifixions and the scourgings that he witnessed. And he writes this, the bystanders were struck with the amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges, even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden parts of the inward body were exposed to view. This is what is happening with Jesus, all right? Modern doctors have compared the damage of, of scourging to the results of, of a shotgun blast to a body in modern day. And Jesus endured this. His body was, guys, literally ripped apart. So, you know, when we take communion and, and we say the body of Christ for you, we can quickly just move past that and be like, okay, cool. Thank you, Jesus. And then you realize what the bread, you ripping it off the loaf, actually represents. That Jesus, just like he was literally ripped apart, the bread represents him being torn apart. And you dip it in the juice as a symbol of the blood that was actually shed for you. It's a picture of a reminder of what has happened. And if we look at the prophet Isaiah in his writings and his prophecies, he described how this would happen to Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, he talked about how Jesus's appearance would be marred in such a way that we wouldn't be able to recognize him. That if you saw Jesus before his scourging and you knew him, that after he got scourged, you might be able to recognize that he was a man, but you certainly wouldn't be able to recognize he was Jesus. He was literally ripped apart. Now, it's after this brutality that Jesus was then forced to carry his crossbar to the place that he would be crucified. And, and maybe now understanding the scourging, it makes sense now what you read in verse 26 of chapter 23. Look back. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Like that just seems like one of those things of like, well, why, can't, why couldn't Jesus just carry his own crossbar? Why did they have to pull poor Simon into this? It's because Jesus was so brutally beaten that his body was likely in shock and just shutting down, that he couldn't carry his crossbar that you picture just the, the scene of just like the exposed skin and all of this stuff. He's laying on the ground, he's falling. They put a log on his back, which has just been ripped open. And he can't, do, I mean, his body, he's, he's fully God, fully man. And it's just shutting down. And they pull Simon in to help. Now look at verse 33. And they came to the place that is called the skull. And there they crucified him. Now, crucifixion, something that we obviously don't know too much about because we don't see it. 
It was invented by the Persians 500 years before Jesus was born, but then it was taken by the Romans and perfected as a, as a torturing device, as a, as a way to, to kill people in a really harsh way. And crucifixion was, was one of the, the most horrendous, shameful, painful ways that anybody could die. That it literally, there was a word invented to describe what actually was happening in crucifixion. That that study I shared with you in 1986, all right, this is how that study ended. And I quote, death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. That there was no word that could describe what was actually happening in crucifixion, that they had to give the word excruciating to describe what actually happened that those people who died on the cross died a terribly painful death of excruciating pain. And it was ultimately a very slow form of death intended to make someone suffer as long as the human body could possibly endure. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus said it was the most wretched of death. All right, and death on a cross, death by crucifixion was ultimately death by asphyxiation. All right, that as a, as a man would hang, that they wouldn't oftentimes hang or crucify women because it was not even fit. You couldn't even imagine a woman dying in the, that way. But when they would crucify a man, he would be spread out like this and they would hang. And their lungs would literally be pinched to the way that they wouldn't be able to get oxygen into their lungs. And so it was dying by asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. And so to prolong that, what they would do, archaeologists have found that they would put a seat underneath the person being crucified to prolong that death. So they couldn't just make themselves slouch and kill themselves quicker. And so there's records of crucifixions and people dying on the cross that lasted days. It was meant to just make you suffer in such a brutal way. And as people died in this way, oftentimes they would lose control of their body functions. And underneath the body would be pools of not just blood and pieces of, of their body, but feces, urine. It was a disgusting scene. And I say this to say, guys, when we get those pictures of Jesus on the cross, you've seen him, right? And he's almost looking like he's having a good time. He's got, his, he's got beautiful blonde hair and maybe just a little bit of blood coming from his side and he's just kind of like smiling at you. That is not the scene we have. And what this does is it diminishes the gospel. It diminishes the suffering of Jesus. And so it's important for us to know what actually happened. It was awful. Because this is how Jesus died. And you need to know these details because we gather and we sing about the crucifixion. We speak of the crucifixion. We pray in regards to the crucifixion this terrible scene, this terrible thing that happened. So I have to ask this question, is how in the world, guys, can Christians call this good news? Have you thought about that? I mean, how can we call this good news? How can you wear a crucifix around your neck or get it tattooed on you, right? I mean, when I moved to Madison, that used to be like my thing. I was like, I'm just gonna meet some Christians. So I would go to the gym and every dude in there with like his bro tank on that has tattoos on him with a cross, I would go up and be like, oh, you're a Christian. And be like, why would you even ask me that? And I'm like, well, you have a foot-long cross on your shoulder, right? And he was like, oh, no, that's just because it's cool, right? And I'm like, okay, well, I got Philippians 4.13 on my chest. Through God, all, all things. I can do all things through God. It gives me strength, right? No. We've lost the, the magnitude of the cross. 
But how is this good news? Some of you, you, you raise your hands, right? We sing songs and, and we talk about the crucifixion, what you just heard, and you raise your hand. How? I mean, weird, right? And this is our last question. What does it mean for us? And guys, as I've been studying this, one of the things that stood out to me, which kind of led the way that I chose to teach this to you today, was that how the, the author, how Luke deals with Jesus's crucifixion. And I'm struck by how all the gospel writers have, have dealt and tackled the idea of the crucifixion that Luke, along with Matthew and Mark and John, they don't dwell on the manner by which Jesus was crucified. That if you search all the gospels, and I, and I think you should, this week, as we approach Easter, go through all the gospels, and I want you to look at the, the crucifixion account. You see virtually no details of Jesus's physical suffering. That the gruesome, horrendous details that we just looked at, while they're true, they're not given to us by the gospel evangelists. They're given to us by history. And I think that with everything that we've been studying, this point up to Luke, I mean, guys, we've been going through Luke's gospel for what, eight months? We've seen so many details about Jesus' life, the things that he said, the types of people that he interacted with, so many details about what he says. And then we get to this, the, most, the pivotal moment in the world, the most important death, the thing that Christianity is, is built around, the cross. And we get there and we have four words. There, they crucified him. Why only four words? We've been, why? Here's what I think. I think the gospel writers understood that if they focused primarily on the details of the physical suffering of Jesus, that the reader could get caught up in those details and just stop there. That if they focused on just the physical details of the crucifixion, the reader could quickly look at this scene as it was described in all of its gory details and think, okay, once I have been gripped and emotionally moved by this dreadful scene, then I've grasped the point of the cross. When in reality, that's not the point of the cross at all. The outward aspects of the crucifixion is not the point. And that's why the Bible leaves that out. Because to overlook these other deep dimensions of the crucifixion, these truths that the, the gospel writers are, are trying to teach is to miss everything. Because I want you to hear this, guys. Sympathy for Jesus as the perfect sufferer stops short of faith in Jesus as the perfect savior. You need to know that. That if you focus on Jesus as the perfect sufferer, you can be emotionally moved and say, oh my gosh, like I feel so terrible. An innocent man was killed. That is awful, and you feel emotion, emotional, and you're like, wow, that's, that's awful. It's possible for someone to feel that without moving to faith and seeing Jesus as the perfect savior, which is the point of the Bible. And there's an eternity of difference. And it's for that reason that the evangelists and the authors of the epistles they didn't care about the details of the crucifixion. They cared about what happened. Why? Why did this happen? What did the cross achieve? This is what they wanted to know. What did his suffering achieve? And you're not going to find any of these details in the Bible. But what the Bible gives you guys 
It's just summary statements. All right, so you get the, the, the event of crucifixion, and then what the Bible does is then it uses this little word for to transition into the theological significance and what this means for us. And so I'm going to show you this, okay? I'm going to encourage you. I'm just going to go through this really quickly. Write these verses down. You can look at them later at Connection Group. But here's what we see. We see the event, the crucifixion of Jesus, the word for, and then its significance. Isaiah 53, 5, write that down. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 2.2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Guys, you want to know why the crucifixion of Jesus is such good news and why we can stand and have our hands raised in the air and why we can pray and acknowledge the fact that this gruesome act is really, really a good thing because it is for you. It is for me. The word gospel literally means good news. Guys, there is good news through the cross of Jesus that even though that we, because of our sin, we murdered God. Do you guys know that? Have you felt that weight? That your sin, we sing that song, how great the father's love for us. And we say, it was my sin that held him there. You need to know that your sin is what held Jesus on the cross. We murdered God. Every single one of us, because of our sin, this is what held Jesus. This is what killed Jesus. And you need to feel the weight of that. As we approach Easter, you feel the weight of your sin, but you don't stay there. You don't stay in that death because Jesus didn't stay in death. He rose to forgive all of that, and the cross points us to the thing that it's for you. That the cross, guys, it's for you, and it's because of you. But there's really, really good news. Theologically, we we call this, and I want you to write this down if you can spell it. Penal substitutionary atonement. It's not that hard, okay? But I I share this this theological truth with you, not to say, hey guys, look how smart I am, because if we ever have coffee, you're gonna be like, that's not true, okay? But it's because it's, it's, it's distinct. It's something that is emphatically true that helps us to understand what the cross is all about. It's about penal substitutionary atonement. And so let me explain this to you because if we miss this, we're gonna miss everything. And there is no gospel, there is no good news. So word by word, the word penal, meaning that there is a penalty for your sin. Write that down. Believe it or not, that there is a penalty for your sin. I know we live in a world that we think we can do whatever we want and it's, it's absurd that I would ever get punished for something wrong. I mean, we see this on the news, like you do something wrong and then you get off for it, right? But You do something wrong, there's a penalty for that. This starts back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. God had one rule for Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you know the rule? Don't kill yourself. They couldn't do it. They disobeyed God. And sin and death came into the world. The Bible tells us that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. That no one is good. 
This is what Paul says in Romans 6, 23. He says that the wages of sin is death. Guys, the penalty for sin you need to know is death. And when Jesus went to the cross, he did so to pay the penalty for our sin. Next word, substitution. That Jesus is our substitute. This means that Jesus went in our place. He died the death that I should have died. He felt what I should have felt because of my sin, but he substituted himself for me. If you go back to Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve substituted themselves for God. Sin came into the world. On the cross, Jesus reversed that substitution, becoming a substitute for sinners, you and me. He is our substitute. The big idea of the cross, the crucifixion, is substitution that Jesus paid the penalty for me. And the third word, atonement. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Atonement is what we see throughout the Bible when as soon as sin comes into the world, that there is a need for atonement. Humanity, even apart from the Bible, understands that atonement points that there's this chasm, that there's a reconciliation that needs to happen between us and God. And we can't get there on our own. And humanity recognizes this. I remember being in Mexico. You remember the, the Mayan ruins, the pyramids? I remember Lisa and I were, were there and we were walking around there and they would tell us how the people there would sacrifice to the gods because they understood that there was something wrong with humanity, that they, they needed a blood sacrifice and they literally killed off their entire people <laughs> trying to please the gods. There needs to be some type of of sacrifice to atone for our sin. And we see this in the Old Testament. People celebrating the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. The whole point of atonement, guys, is, is that sin has separated us from God and that sin must be taken away if we wanna live forever with God. Jesus offers atonement. Jesus is our penal substitutionary atonement. He died in our place for our sins. And that's why we love him so much. That's why we worship him. That's why we raise our hands. That's why we give our lives. That's why we plant churches. That's why Ronnie gets up and says, invite one person. Because there's people that don't know Jesus and they don't have atonement. And we just wanna simply say, there's a way. There's good news. This is what the evangelist, Dr. Luke, is doing. He's giving us Jesus. He's giving us the way and saying, here's what you need to know. There's a way to God. It's all about what has happened to you on the cross for you. Guys, here is the big idea. Jesus is God who died on the cross for your sin and your salvation. The most important thing you could ever know is that. So here's how I'll end. I'll end with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think it's gonna come up here on the screen. Paul says, for I've delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says of everything that you need to know, of all the things that you listen to, college students, in your lectures, of all the conversations that you've had, of all the books that you read, the most important thing for you to learn is this, is that Christ died for your sins. This is it. 
This is why I love the Bible. This is why I, I, I love, I'm honored to teach the Bible because I get to share this good news that there is a way that Jesus did it. And there's not one single person in this room, in this city, in this country that is too far gone for God. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking that, man, I'd love to have coffee with you and tell you about my background and how Jesus kind of stepped in and power washed my soul, right? That there's no one who's too far gone. Jesus did it. And as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, our sin is holding him there. He's got his arms wide open. It is a picture and an invitation for you to come to God. And he's saying, come, I love you. I love you. This is what the cross is about. He's done everything to love you. And it's not about what you have done. It's about what he's done for you. So I'm done. I'm going to pray. Okay. I've given you, I'm not going to pray yet. Hold on. I've given you what the evangelist Luke has given us. I've, I've given you a historical account of what happened with the crucifixion. My job as, one of my jobs as the pastor is to simply stand up here and do what Psalm 107.2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I, I say so and I teach the Bible and I give you what the Bible says. And then we hear it we hear the word of God and we decide what we're going to do about it. Two most important things in the life of a Christian, in the life of really anybody, is what is God saying and what am I going to do about it? That you need to decide now. You've heard the gospel. You need to decide what do you do with that? And guys, you either accept it or you reject it. This is, you're at a crossroads right now. And so I'm just going to pray and give you some time to get with God and figure out what to do with that. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for the way that you love. I know the, the point is not to dwell on all the physical things that you endured for me but I'm, I'm grateful that I know it because I know it is my sin that, that held you there. I know that I was involved with putting you on the cross. And I did that. We did that to you because of our sin, because of our disobedience, but I'm so grateful that you did everything for us. That despite all of our sin, that in the midst of that, that you died for us. And so as we respond and take communion and sing, would you remind us that the gospel, the cross, is indeed good news because it's for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.